This morning we'll be looking at verses 22 through 32, and uh, we probably won't get through the the whole thing, but uh, we'll try our best. Um, This section of Scripture holds in it what's called the unpardonable sin, and uh, that's known as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and we're going to be looking at that, and that's in verse... um, in this in this passage, but in in verse thirty two specifically, we see kind of the key here uh, to this this whole uh, passage. It says, "Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come." Uh, let's just read Matthew twelve verses twenty two. To 32, so we can get it in its context. Then one who was brought to him, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out Demons, except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Well, this morning, as we look at this passage, there's a lot of confusion around the words which we read, the text that we read this morning. By the very words of Jesus Christ himself, he says that there's a sin that's unforgivable. That's what he says. And it's to speak against blaspheme against the Holy Spirit of God. Um, Now, a lot of us may have been familiar with this passage, but maybe a lot of us have never really understood what this passage is about. There have been a lot of false fears generated around these verses. Um, And so we want to trust this morning that the Spirit of God will give us a clear understanding of what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God and how and why that is what God calls the unpardonable sin. Now, before we actually get into the text, we kind of have to lay a little groundwork. 
so that we understand some basic principles about this subject. Um, and just in way of introduction, and there's some notes there in, your, in the uh, grace folder there. Um, by virtue, God, by his very nature, by who he is, his essence, everything about him, God is a forgiving God. We have to understand that before we go any further. It's not in his nature to be unforgiving. It's in his nature to be totally forgiving. Scripture says, for example, in Psalm 86, 5, I think these are written in your notes there, you, Lord, are good and ready or eager, the idea is, to forgive. Psalm 103 Verse 3 says, he forgives all your iniquities. Even over in Daniel 9, it says, the God to whom belong mercies and forgiveness. God is described as a God who forgives. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7, it says, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, listen to this, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That speaks of the God in which we serve. Even the prophet Micah in 7.18 says, Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? who will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. I think we would all understand this morning that God is a forgiving God, that he forgives sin. The Old Testament is, you can, you, know, you can just go through it page after page after page, and you see indication that God is a forgiving God. You see illustrations of that. You see stories of that. Adam and Eve sinned. What happened? God forgave. The patriarch sinned. God forgave. The people of God, under the leadership of the judges, they sinned. What happened? God forgave them. Under the kings, they sinned. God forgave them. Throughout the flow of history, people have always needed to have God's forgiveness. God is a forgiving God. He forgave in the past. He forgives in the present. And he'll continue to forgive. That's who he is. And in the New Testament, we see the same thing. John the Apostle wrote, My little children, he has forgiven all your sins for his name's sake. Or in the book of Ephesians, it says, He has granted us redemption and forgiveness of sins. That wonderful passage in Isaiah says, Though our sins are as what? Scarlet. They will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If there's one thing that God is in the business of, it's in the, the business of forgiving. That's the essence of the gospel message. That man is a sinner and God is a forgiver of that sin based on the work of Christ. So when we consider the fact that there is in this passage an unforgivable sin, that's what it says, that's what Jesus calls it, we have to understand what we're talking about here. Is that contradicting God's nature? No. It may appear that God is going against himself, against his nature. 
until we understand truly what's going on here. It doesn't really matter how severe the sin is. Do you understand that? God can still forgive it. It doesn't matter what you have done in your life. God can still forgive it. There are people who think that they've did something so hideous that there's no way they could ever have forgiveness. And that's just simply not true. Because there is no sin that's so heinous, heinous, so bad, so gross that it will never be forgiven. I mean, you think about the worst possible sin that could be committed throughout history. One pops to my mind is the simple fact that they took the Son of God. They took Jesus Christ himself, who was an innocent man, sinless. I mean, they brutally murdered him on a cruel cross after mocking and scourging and beating him to the point where he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. I mean, that's a horrible sin. That's probably the worst sin that you could ever do is kill God's son for no reason. You have murder and hate and rejection, all of that wrapped up in the murder of Jesus Christ. Yet it's precisely that sin which Jesus demonstrates is forgivable. (laughs) In Luke 23... Verse 34, here's what it says. Luke 23, verse 34. We all know this verse. We've seen it time and time again. Then Jesus said, as he hung on the cross, Father, what? Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they just murdered, they're in the process of murdering God's son. And Jesus turns to the father and says, Father, forgive them. Even killing the son of God, beloved, is forgivable. You need to understand that. See, it isn't how horrible the sin is as to whether it's forgivable or not. It's not even the volume of sin. Some of you may have lived a real reprobate life before you came to Christ and you just have more sins than you knew what to do with. It's not the volume of your sins. God doesn't look at you and say, oh, you're really bad. I don't know if I can handle that. I don't know if I can forgive all those sins. See, the unforgivable sin is a unique thing. Very unique. In no way does it violate the forgiving heart of God. We have to first understand that before we get into the text. If you look throughout Scripture, you see where God forgives idolaters. He forgives murderers. He forgives liars. He forgives cheaters, deceivers, gluttons, covenant breakers, fornicators, adulterers, uh, homosexuals, the covetous, drunkards, extortioners, all, all kinds of criminals. He even goes to the extent to say that, you know what, I can even forgive the people that think they don't have any sin. That's the sin of what? Self-righteousness, right? Some people say, well... No, I don't have any sin. Well, you don't have to look too long at your life to conclude that there's something wrong there. When you think yourself sinless, that's the supreme self-righteous act. 
Well, some say, well, I think what the unpardonable sin is, is the fact that they rejected Christ. Isn't that what it is? See, if the sin of rejecting Christ was unforgivable, how would any of us be saved? (laughs) Because I guarantee you, at one point in your life before you came to Christ, you rejected the gospel before you embraced it. You rejected Christ before you embraced him as your Lord and Savior. We were all once Christ haters. We were all once Christ rejectors, you might say. But you know what? That is forgivable. In fact, John 16 says that the Holy Spirit came into the world for the express purpose to convict the world of sin because they didn't believe in Christ. Paul, when you think of the life of Paul, when he was Saul before he became Paul, he was a living testimony that God can, 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 can forgive even someone who's a blasphemer. It's in the first chapter of his letter to Timothy that he says, I was a blasphemer. I mean, this guy murdered Christians for fun. Jesus says clearly in his word, it doesn't matter who comes to me. Whoever comes to me, he says, in no way will I cast you out. So I don't care what you've done in your life. I don't care what kind of life you've lived, what kind of sin you've done. I want you to understand this morning that God is a forgiving God. And you know what? There's no limit to his forgiveness. You have to understand that. There's no forgiveness at any time. However, without meeting a condition. And that condition is called repentance. That condition is called confession. That condition is called a turning to God instead of running away from God. See, the condition is repentance, confession. It's the act of faith in Christ. You want to know why the Pharisees couldn't be forgiven. You don't want to know why their sin was unpardonable. Why they were beyond God's pardon. It's because they perceived themselves as beyond a need for repentance. Before we look at what the unpardonable sin is, what is it not? First of all, as we just said, it's not the rejection of Christ. If it was a rejection of Christ, we'd all be lost. And it's not even the denial of Christ. You think of Peter. He denied Christ, yet he was forgiven. It's not the denial of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Some people think, well, if you curse against the Holy Spirit or something, that's the unpardonable sin. No, it's not. That's not what Scripture teaches. It's not even the grieving of the Holy Spirit. The Bible speaks of when we sin as believers or when we're doing something in the flesh, it grieves the Spirit of God. That's not unpardonable. We probably all do that on a daily basis if we're honest with ourselves. And it's definitely not the falling away of the saved because that's an impossibility. Once God saves you, it's impossible for you to be saved again. (laughs) Hebrews 6. We're not going to get into that this morning because we'd be there for hours, but... You know, it's very clear in the Word of God that once you are put your faith, your trust in Christ, and He transforms you, 
He makes you a new person in him. Your sins are not only forgiven, but you are secure in him. That's very clear. We call that doctrine the perseverance of the saints. Some people refer to it as once saved, always saved. I don't necessarily agree with those words. I think that cheapens it. That makes it sound like, hey, all you got to do is get saved, and then you can go do whatever you want. That's not true. If you're truly saved, you're going to desire to please God. You're going to desire to persevere in your faith with the aid of the Spirit. Well, as we approach this passage, Jesus was preaching, he was teaching, he was healing, he was even casting out demons in Galilee, all over the place. He'd, he had really grown his whole ministry. People were following him, flocking behind him. And then he took the twelve, and he chose them, and he sent them out. And he had given them the power over disease, the Bible says, and demons so that they could multiply the healing ministry and the ministry of deliverance that Christ had. And he had also gave them the message to preach, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so they're, they're busy, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're engaged in the proclamation of this message. And as this whole situation kind of escalates... There's certain evidences of healings and there's certain evidences of deliverances that Jesus is doing. The king is presenting himself to the people and he's saying, here's what is just a little taste of what it's going to be like in my kingdom. That's why the Bible says last week we looked at it when the people followed him and uh, he, he turned and he healed them all. He wasn't particular. He didn't say, okay, all you who believe in me, get over here. You're going to get a healing. Those of you that don't, too bad. He didn't do that. He healed them all. Because he was demonstrating his messiahship. He was demonstrating that he was the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he was showing them just a little glimpse of what it's going to be like in the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, we're not going to have creaky bones and, you know, hard to get up in the morning and not going to get sick and we're not going to deal with cancer and we're not going to deal with death and tears and sorrow. None of that is going to be there. But at the same time as he's giving all this evidence out to who he is, there's mounting in the background kind of a slow boil. Just kind of a, something that you'd have in the crock pot, just boiling away all day. You know, it's just sitting there. And what it was, was, was mounting up the rejection that was going to come. Even though all this evidence was here, there was this mounting rejection boiling up in the hearts of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. John 1.11 was being fulfilled, as it were. It says that he came unto his own, and his own received him what? Not. The gospel writers at this point in the life of Christ, they begin to record an attitude of rejection that takes place. It's moving against Christ. And eventually, it's going to reach a climax. 
Luke 11 records many kind of similar blasphemous accusations. Kind of like what Matthew does. And there, there were many blasphemies against Christ. But this is one that, that Matthew kind of zeroes in on. And at this point, we finally ultimately see the leadership of Israel is not going to accept their Messiah. They've turned their back on him totally. And we've seen that as we've kind of come through chapters 11 and 12. In chapter 10, Christ was presented as the king. And then we begin to see that there's this immediate following. And then they began to look at what he's doing and how he's acting and things. And they began to say, ah, oh, they began to question it. Is this the real dude? Is this the real guy? Is he really the Messiah? And we've seen where people first doubted, then they criticized, then there was some indifference, and then ultimately there was some rejection. And now that rejection is turning to open blasphemy of who he is. It's kind of the epitome of rejection itself. I mean, think about it. In Israel, for years, they lived in hope of their Messiah coming, ruling, and reigning. It was a desire of every Jewish girl that maybe she could be the one that would be the mother. I mean, you know, of, of, of the Messiah. It was the heart cry of every prophet, of every teacher in Israel, that they would love to live to see the day when the Messiah would come. They looked forward to it. They wanted that deliverance that was promised in the scripture. That was their hope. That was their dream. But see, when he came, they just flat out rejected him. They flat out rejected him. They turned on him. They wanted him dead, and eventually he was. They killed him. And you're going to see when we get into chapter 13, all of a sudden there's a whole new wave that we're riding. He's kind of like God is taking a new path. Because see, Israel's intention, and of course from God's perspective, it was to reach the world. He, he gave them a message. He gave them the Messiah. And they were to take that Messiah and proclaim it, and that message, and proclaim it to the world. But they didn't do that. God didn't mean it just to go to Israel so they could, they could have a Messiah and then it would end there. Once again, Israel wasn't a cul-de-sac. It's not like you just drove in there and it was a dead end. Okay, well, Israel's going to be saved, but you know, the rest of the world is literally going to go to hell. That wasn't God's plan. God's plan was that he would take the message of the Messiah and of forgiveness and everything to Israel. And then Israel would be the agents in which they could go out and share the message of the gospel. But it didn't happen that way. Because they rejected their own Messiah. They blocked that channel of God's working, of God's blessing. And so God had in his plan the church. And that's the age in which we live in now. He took it to Israel. They rejected it. So he took it to the Gentiles, the church. Now one day, that doesn't mean that the church replaced Israel. We don't believe that. We believe Israel is still God's chosen people. And that one day he's going to restore them. And he's a protector of Israel. We see that very clearly. But right now, the age in which we live, it's 
the church who is taking the message of the Messiah and the gospel out to a lost and dying world, including the nation of Israel. So as we look at verses 22 and the following, it's important to understand that we're going to see here this, this ultimate kind of peak of rejection of Christ. It's slowly building and finally it just boils over. And it's just downright open blasphemy and rejection. Well, let's look first of all in our text at the miracle of the Lord. The miracle of the Lord. And here we see in verse 22 the action of the master. The action of the master. It says, when one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. You think you got problems. Okay, this guy had some serious problems. Think about it. He was blind. He was mute, couldn't speak. Which a lot of times even meant that he was deaf on top of that. He couldn't hear probably either. A lot of mute people can hear. Doesn't say that, but who knows? And then he was possessed by a demon on top of everything else. I read that earlier this week and I thought, man, here I am whining about some of the things in my life. Jeez. I mean, this guy had a tough roto. He was just, that was just a tough thing that was brought to him in his life. He was demon-possessed, he was blind, and he was mute. And somebody brought him. That's kind of cool. We don't know who that was. Did you ever think about that? I wonder who it was that brought this deaf, blind, mute, demon-possessed guy to Christ. It's obviously somebody who cared for him. It's obviously somebody who knew who Christ was and knew that somehow Christ could affect change in this person. It was obviously somebody who had a personal, at one point, encounter with Christ to the point that they understood that, hey, if God changed me, maybe he could change this guy. Sounds kind of like what we as Christians are supposed to be doing, doesn't it? We go out and we find the deaf and the blind, and the mute, and the demon-possessed. And what do we do? We bring them to the cross. We bring them to the Savior because we know that we can't help them. But we know somebody who can because they helped us. I think it's high time the church in general started to realize that they need to start living out their faith. So many times we're ashamed of our faith. We're ashamed of our Savior. We're ashamed. I mean, we do it on Sunday when we're here in the household of faith. Oh, we're real bold then. Praise the Lord or whatever. When's the last time you said praise the Lord at work? See, we need to stop playing games because we're living in such a day that there's so many hurting people out there. All they want is a little hope. Just a little encouragement. I'm not saying you've got to break out your portable pulpit and your 20-pound King James and, you know, start, you know... Preaching at the lunchroom. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is, let's be real. Let's let people see Christ in us. Let's not hide back in the shadows, afraid of the world. Because they may mock us or they may make fun of us. Well, of course they're going to do that. They, re- they killed the Son of God. 
You don't think that you're going to have a little rough time explaining to them that he was Messiah? Of course you are. But this guy brought him to Jesus. And it says, and he healed him. Three little words. He healed him. Wasn't a big show. It wasn't, you know, now, let me interview you first. (laughs) Wasn't any of that. He didn't proclaim to the crowd, look at, here's a demon-possessed guy, and he's he's deaf, and he's blind, and he's mute. Look at what I'm going to do now. He didn't have to do that. See, a lot of things we see on TV, a lot of things we see all this, you know, healing stuff and all that garbage. That's exactly what it is. Can God heal today? Definitely. Do we pray for people to be healed? Definitely. Does God have to use somebody who's a so-called faith healer? Absolutely not. You don't have to follow the trail too long to figure out what they're after. The so-called faith healers. The so-called name it and claim it, the so-called health and prosperity, all those people, you can put them right in one big bucket. And the only thing their eyes are on is your wallet. And it, I mean, just a side note, it really ticks me off when I hear Christians defending these false heretical teachers. When people like 60 Minutes or Nightline or whatever, they've already exposed them. I mean, they have documentaries of these guys, you know, opening up their little prayer envelopes, taking the prayer request and going, hey, here's a check, and finding them in the trash somewhere. I mean, we have to wake up. You know what I've never seen at one of these healing meetings? I've never seen a blind man. Have you ever seen a blind man in a healing meeting? I have never seen a blind man in a healing meeting. Well, you know what? There was blind men all over Jesus all the time. And all he had to do was say, you know what? You're healed. Doesn't even say he said anything here. Just said he healed him. We don't even know how he did it. And look at the result of this action by the master. It says he healed him. Well, what happened next? So that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And it's implied in there that he was made whole. Instantly. Instantly. It wasn't like, go check with your doctor now. I mean, sometimes you watch this stuff on TV and you hear people, you know, yeah, you know, I was at your meeting last, last, last month and, you know, you healed my, my sore hip. But I had to come back because I got a bum arm now. What's that about? Beloved, if God is going to heal you, he's going to heal you. Do you understand this? There's not going to be a waiting period. That's why it's called a miracle. It's not called a miracle because you've got to go take medicine and, and go through treatments and, and do all this stuff. And then in the end say, whoa, God healed me. No. Medical science God has gifted men with the ability to heal the human body. That's a wonderful gift from God, and we, could, we should take full advantage of it. But sometimes, 
God possesses the ability to say, you know what? Boom, you're healed. And when he does that, it's complete. Entire healing. I heard one guy at one of these meetings talking about getting healed and how he was healed of cancer or whatever, and he's still wearing his glasses. And I thought, wait a minute. If God was going to heal you, pal, he would have healed your whole body. Because that's what he did in the scriptures. And we've we, we got to stop making excuses for what's going on in the church. I mean, we have to judge things by the authority of the word of God, not by somebody's experience. And I'm just sick and tired of hearing, well, you know, I was over in Africa, and, and I've seen this and I've seen that, or in Mexico. Or well, it's never over here. It's always somewhere where you can't verify it. Well, that's not how Jesus dealt with people. It says that he healed him so completely that he both spoke and he saw. And there's nothing particularly different about this healing. He did this time and time and time again. But you know what? The people were dumbfounded at what happened in front of them. They were so amazed, it's like they couldn't even catch their breath. Remember the the blind man that was healed in John 9, and he says, you know what? You're confused about this guy? I don't know what to tell you. I just know that I used to be blind. Now Now I see. How he did it, who he is, It's irrelevant to me. All I know is that I can see. And what he was implying was, you know what? It's obvious this guy is somebody other than just the normal people down here on earth. earth. He, He possesses the innate power to heal a blind person. And he had the power to do far beyond what they could even imagine or think. And while they could see that, they looked at that and they were amazed by that. They were reluctant to accept him as their Messiah. Why was that? It's pretty clear. It didn't, he didn't meet the, their idea of what the Messiah was going to look like. He didn't meet their preconceived perspective. We're probably asking themselves, well, wait a minute. Where's all the fanfare for this Messiah? I mean, if he's going to be a king, when a king arrives in town, I mean, you've got a giant parade, you've got everything going on. How did this guy arrive on the scene? Oh, he was born in a manger and you know, <laughs> some angels and stuff, but that was about it. Where were the trumpeters? Where were the, the clash of swords in the army? Where's the revolution in the streets? Where's the, the, the fire and the fury that's going to overthrow Rome? See, that's what they had in their mind when they thought of a Messiah. Who was this guy? He's meek. He's humble. He's gentle. He's compassionate. He's a carpenter. For goodness sakes, he runs around with these poor people. He's not starting any riots. He's not trying to overthrow Rome. He he won't even argue with you, for goodness sakes. How can this guy be our Messiah? 
Sure, he can do all this stuff. That's pretty amazing. But you know what? There has to be an explanation for that because this guy can't be the Messiah. Even though they missed it. Even back in, in, I believe it's in verse 17, we looked at last week. It says, he is this way because Isaiah said that he would be this way. Remember? He was this way because it was written in the prophets. He would be a servant. He wouldn't wrangle. He wouldn't hassle. He wouldn't argue. He's not going to cause riots and revolutions in the streets. He's not going to trample over people to get what he wants. He's not going to seek his own will, but the Father's will. Rather, he's going to concentrate on the poor. He's going to concentrate on those broken reeds, those, those you know, uh, flax that's, that's, that's not, not, not burning, the wick, flickering wick, which is almost out. He's going to focus on broken people. He's going to be gentle and compassionate. In chapter 11, Matthew 28 to 30, it says he'll be meek. See, they couldn't handle that. They thought there's no way a Messiah can be meek. That's not what a Messiah is all about in their mind. But see, they stepped back and they said, well, it's obvious that he has some supernatural stuff going on here. Look at what he's doing. They don't even dispute that. That's kind of interesting. But they asked if he's really the Messiah. See, in this healing, right here in Matthew 12, triggers this whole kind of climax of his rejection. Because you have to remember, the Pharisees are just back in the shadows. They're just almost walking right in his footsteps. Wherever he goes, wherever Jesus goes, the Pharisees are right behind him. They're just back in the shadows. They're watching him. They're trying to catch him doing something wrong. Luke tells us that the scribes from Jerusalem even joined them. Joined them, And then we talked about last week how the Herodians even were in on the whole thing, which was a really odd mix of leadership, because none of these people got along. And that's what's funny, is when people want to attack Christ, you can bring people from all sorts of backgrounds, whatever. If they can concentrate on attacking Christ, man, they can get along all day long. Do you ever notice that? So there's this little group of leaders, the Herodians, the scribes, the Pharisees, and they're just just following Christ everywhere he goes. And they're looking for a way to trap him. Then he does this miracle. Now you have to understand, demons do possess people. That's a very real thing. We're not going to get into all this today, but it's a very real thing. They live in people. They have the ability to do that. There's no question about that. We see it over and over in Scripture. That's a totally biblical thing. They can affect people in a lot of different ways. They can affect people in ways we probably don't even understand. And you can't put a tag on it. You can't say, oh, well, yeah, this guy's out on the rocks and he's cutting himself and he's acting kind of weird. He must be demon-possessed. You know, you can have somebody that's, that's dressed in the finest suit on Wall Street and still be demon-possessed, and you'd probably never even know it. That's why he's called the deceiver. There are demons who may create in people certain physical illnesses, blindness, death, dumbness, as in the case here. So demons activate themselves through human beings. And that's Satan's 
kind of little game plan. That's one of the ways in which he functions. So this is a very real situation. This isn't a story. And Jesus approaches this individual who is brought to him, it says, and he delivers him, obviously, from the demon. And instantly, not only does he have a spiritual deliverance from demonic control, but total wellness. He's whole. He was blind, and instantly he sees. He was dumb, mute. Immediately he talks. Hears everything. Totally fixed. And as a result, the people are amazed. They're just blown away by it. That word that's used here, speaking of all the multitudes were amazed. It means to be beside yourself with astonishment. It's not just saying, oh, oh, wow, good job, Jesus. No. I mean, you're going back and you're just going, wow, I can't believe this guy did this. It just blows you away. It was an overwhelming thing. And the tense in the original language even indicates that there's this ongoing astonishment. It's not just like, oh, wow, that's cool. Show me something else. No, they were so blown away by this miracle that was in their presence, they just they couldn't lose focus of it. The amazement stayed with these people. And they asked the question, this can't be the son of God, son of David, can it? Son of David is a title for the Messiah. It's out of 2 Samuel 7, 13, where God said that he would raise up the son of David, who would have an everlasting kingdom. So the son of David became kind of a, a, a sign for the Messiah, a name for the Messiah. And you remember, when Jesus came, we're going to look at this when we get closer to Easter, but when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what'd they cry out? Hosanna, son of David. Right? Which is his messianic title. It meant the ultimate king who would reign on David's throne. The great Messiah. So they were saying, this can't be the Messiah, can it? This can't be the son of David. And it's kind of almost like you want to put it in percentages. Probably like an 80, 80% no, 20% yes. The no comes from the fact that he, fit, he didn't fit their, their bill. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to, you know, turn over Rome and do all this stuff. And Jesus came totally the opposite, meek, mild-mannered, everything. And, but the 20% yes was like, wow, he just does this stuff, and we can't explain it. There's like something supernatural about this guy. What kind of person is this? See, they were saying, what kind of person is this? But then they came another step. This isn't the Messiah, is it? And the next step is, this is the Messiah, isn't it? And after, after that, this is the Messiah. See, they're on a road. And they have to make a decision. They have to make a discernment by what they're seeing. And they have to say, yeah, this is the way or it's not the way. This isn't the Messiah or he's not the Messiah. We all have faced that decision at one point or another in our lives. We're all on a road. And we're all on a road that leads to hell because of our own sin. And at a point in time, there becomes very clear a fork in the road. 
And Jesus beckons us, and he says, you know what? If you'll follow me, if you'll put your faith, your trust in me, because I am the Messiah, look around you at all the lives I've changed. Hear are the testimonies of people, hundreds and thousands of people who have come to Christ. I mean, either all these people are just a bunch of Kool-Aid-drinking idiots, or I'm really who I said I am. And what I did for them, I can do for you. But because Jesus is the kind of Messiah that is meek and mild, he doesn't grab you and tie you up and carry you off to heaven with you kicking and screaming. He beckons you. He says, you know what? Put your faith, your trust in me. You know you're on the wrong road. You know you're in your sin. I mean, we all know that. that we don't have to have an argument about that. All I have to do is follow you around for a couple hours. I could point out various sins in your life, and you could probably do the same in mine. I mean, let's just be honest with each other. But what we see here is that Jesus has them kind of at a crossroads. They've seen all this evidence that points to him as the Messiah. But unfortunately, they're not willing to go there. They're not willing to go there. And so you see the maliciousness here of these leaders rise up. As you look at verse 24, it says, Now when the Pharisees heard it, what they hear? They heard these people saying, uh, could this be the son of David? They started getting scared. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they started thinking, hey, wait a minute. This has gone a little bit too far. We got to get rid of this guy and we got to get rid of this guy now because these people are, are actually considering whether he's the Messiah. And if they believe that he's the Messiah, where are all these people going to go? that are in our clutches, that are under our rule, that listen to our, our little rules and, and self-proclaimed righteousness before God, Who's, where are they going to go to? They're going to go to him. We can't allow that to happen because that means we lose power. Total political power grab here is going on by the Pharisees. And they make an accusation. It says when they heard it, they heard they said this, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. When they use that word, this fellow, it's, it's, it's not a very nice term. They're basically saying, you know what, this guy's a nobody. Do you know where he came from? He is absolutely a nobody. It's a very, you know, kind of nondescript, you know, whoever this guy thinks he is, that's kind of what they're saying. They don't want the crowds to follow Christ. You'll see here that the Pharisees heard it and they responded. But it doesn't tell us where they were or who they said it to. It doesn't say that. Some of the other Gospels basically show us that. Some of the other Gospels maybe indicate that Jesus had at this point gone inside the house and there was people all around him. And they were saying, hey, this can't be the Messiah, can it? And the Pharisees, of course, gathered probably outside the the door of the house within earshot of what was going on because that's how they always acted. And they began to 
whisper to the crowd, who is this guy, this fellow? Are you, are you serious? If he does anything, you know, obviously he did something here. We're not going to deny that, which is kind of interesting if you think about it. These are the enemies of Christ. And what are they doing? They're affirming his supernatural ability. In other words, they're not saying, oh, no, that, that miracle didn't happen. They're not saying that. They're saying, yeah, the miracle happened, but we got to come up for an explanation. So instead of doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit, he does it by the power of Satan. That sounds like a good deal. Remember the big lie? You know, you always hear the big lie. You hear certain things in history when they start whispering. Hitler was, it was the, the big lie was, well, the, the Jews are going to take over everything financially. And, you know, and you repeat it enough, people begin to believe it, even though it's not true. That's what they were trying to get going here. But it says in verse 25 that Jesus knew their hearts, which assumes that he didn't hear what they said. In his own ear, And you know what? He doesn't need to hear it. He knows. He's omniscient. You you can't fool Christ. I mean, you can fool people sitting next to you. You can fool people in the church. You can fool your friends and your family. You can't fool Christ. Who do we think we are? Think about that next time you're all by yourself and you're ready to fall into sin, something that dishonors Christ. Nobody will find out. I'm all by myself. It's not going to hurt anybody. What if Christ was sitting right next to you physically? Would you do it? No. And they were poisoning people and they were saying, you know what? He has this power, but it doesn't come from Beelzebub. He has this power, but it doesn't come from Beelzebub. And their arguments were really illogical. Next week we're going to look at what their arguments were. Not next week, the week after, actually. But I want to leave you with just a couple quick things. So I don't want you leaving here thinking that Satan has some super ability power. He's a very powerful being. He does possess people. I mean, his demons possess people. This is all true. But I also want you to understand that in Genesis 3.15, and these verses basically tell us that Satan is, is doomed. In Genesis 3.15, it says, The seed of the woman, Christ, will defeat Satan, bruise his head. In John 16.11, it says he's already been judged and awaits his final sentencing. In Revelation 12.12, it says he knows his time is short. In Revelation 12.11, it says, In the tribulation, Satan will be overcome by the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation 21-3, it says, he will be bound in the abyss for a thousand years. In verse 10 of chapter 20, Revelation, it says, his final doom will be in the lake of fire. You know what, beloved? I read the end of the book. We win. Satan loses. You should walk out of here not afraid to go out and share the gospel with people who are lost, who are hurt, who are deaf, who are blind, who are mute, who are possessed. Don't be afraid of that. You go in the power of God and you trust him for the results because I guarantee you the power is not in you. The power is in the power of his word and the power of his spirit. And he promises to go before you. So why would we not go out to a lost and dying world 
and share with them a gospel message that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt who the Messiah is, but then also that he's a forgiving God, that he can restore everything back the way he intended it to be. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, I pray that as we continue this study in a couple weeks, that you would prepare our hearts as we look into further what this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. But Lord, it's good to understand clearly that beyond anything else, that our God is a forgiving God. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. But he is a forgiving God. And we should take heart in that. That should make our hearts overjoyed. That he saw us, the Bible says, while we were still yet in sin and Christ died for us. I want you to understand here this morning, if you were the only person that was ever born and you were the only person that ever sinned, you were the only person in the entire world that God would do the same thing just for you. That he would send his son to die on a cross so that you could put your faith, your trust in him so that you could be saved. If you were the only person, he would do that. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares for you. And I pray that you would consider Christ not as some miracle worker, not as some religious fanatic, but you would consider the claim of Christ, that he's the truth, the way, the life, that no man comes to the Father but through him. Because if you come to him, his own word says that he will not cast you out no matter what you've done, when you come with a heart of repentance, he will embrace you and he will forgive you. And I guarantee you beyond any shadow of doubt that you will begin to live life with a whole new purpose, a whole new meaning. Father, we thank you this morning. We pray that you would bless our hearts as we leave this place, as we walk out these doors, that we would be able to take this message of forgiveness and hope in Christ. And Lord, that we would remember that this is the very nature of God that we're talking about, his forgiving nature. And it doesn't matter the people that we're talking about, whether they're dirty or clean or whether they're on the street or in an executive office somewhere. Without Christ, they're lost and they're on their way to hell. And Lord, you've left us here to share the gospel message with those who've yet to hear And Father, I pray that our lives would back up what we preach. That our lives would be testimonies of who Christ is and what he's done in and through us. And Father, we trust that you will use this to further your glory and your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.